Good morning. It's uh, very nice to be here this morning, uh, bring you greetings from the Santa Rosa Bible Church. And uh, you folks are to be commended. You are the courageous and adventuresome ones who came out on this uh, blustery, rainy Sunday morning. Uh, We woke up, I woke up, the wind was shaking our house. I woke up about 3.30 in the morning and said, I think I'm up for the rest of the day. And so uh, I've been up for, uh, for a while. Uh, been looking forward to this. I've known Paul for a number of years, and uh, we actually visited uh, when I had some Sundays off a while back, so we had the privilege of worshiping with you uh, previously, but it's my privilege this morning to be able to come and share God's word with you. I love the name of your church, Soma, the Greek word for the body, and uh, I think of local churches as heavenly embassies because we are called to be ambassadors and we are to represent the king. And so it's a privilege to be able to come here to this embassy, if you will, to share God's word with you this morning. We're going to be in the gospel of Matthew. So I'd like you, if you have a Bible, whatever form it takes, back in the day, we would just say, turn in your Bibles. Now it's push a button or slide a finger or whatever else. But we're going to be in Matthew 5, and we're going to look at uh, four short verses, but they are rich in truth. Verse 17 through verse 20. Matthew five seventeen through 20. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read it. And if you wouldn't mind standing as I read it, uh, we just do that out of respect for the word of the Lord. This is Matthew 5. I'm beginning at verse 17. You'll recognize the words, a familiar part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, we come into your presence on this day. It's your day. It's the Lord's day. And what a privilege it is to be here with these saints. We just join our hearts together and we ask that the spirit, which we uh, sang a prayer to just a few moments ago, would now teach us. We pray that we'll hear you loud and clear through the pages of Scripture. Enlighten us, convict us, challenge us, comfort us. Whatever that need might be, may you just take this portion of Scripture and uniquely apply it to each one here. And we ask this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, pastors are notorious for a lot of things, and um, 
One of the things they're notorious for is quoting dead guys in sermons. Uh, your pastor, I suspect, uh, has done that from time to time, and I'm no exception. But I look at it this way. If someone had something really good to say a long time ago, it's probably a really good thing to say today. As a matter of fact, maybe even more so today than it was back in the day. So I'm going to start with a quote from a dead guy. Um, I was raised in the Lutheran church, and of course I was taught in the Lutheran church about the great reformer, Martin Luther. And this is what Martin Luther said, and I quote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. And this morning, we're going to explore this theme in this text. Christianity is not about what we do. Christianity is about what Jesus did. Our righteousness completely fails to keep the law. But Christ's righteousness completely satisfies it. So we're going to consider a couple of thoughts from our text this morning in Matthew. Number one, we're going to look at the fact that Christ has a very unique relationship to the Scripture. And then we'll look, secondly, at man's relationship with the Scripture. Now, just a quick context here. Our text is found in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. And in the first 12 verses of this chapter, chapter 5, Jesus spoke about the righteous character of those who are his followers. In the next four verses, he described the influence the righteous should have in this world. First of all, he calls us the salt of the earth. That means we are to flavor this foul-tasting world with the savory Jesus. But he also calls us the light of the world. And that means we are to shine light where there is moral and spiritual darkness and decay. Now, in our section, he kind of further elaborates on what true righteousness looks like. So with that context in mind, let's take a look at our first point here in verses 17 and 18, Christ's relationship with the Scripture. Look at verse 17 again. So Jesus preaches this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he faced opposition from the religious leadership, and they are generally identified as the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes were the Mosaic legal experts. They knew the law. And the Pharisee was uh, a sect. There were three major sects in Jerusalem at that, or in Israel at that time. They were like the religious fundamentalists and legalists, if you will, of Judaism. So they were always after him. They debated the Sabbath with him. They debated fasting with him. They debated ritual cleansing with him. They debated theology with him. And they accused him of associating with the wrong kinds of people. They identified him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They criticized him for never appealing. This really galled them. He never appealed to the rabbinic authorities, but instead he spoke as if he had an authority of his own. Now Jesus implies that they also believed he was somehow attempting to render the law or the prophets, which is the whole of Jewish scriptures, inoperative and irrelevant which nothing could be further from the truth. The word abolish means literally to loosen, to loosen. 
So the accusation they seemed to have leveled at him was they believed he wanted to loosen the scriptures on the people, the grip of the scriptures on the people. He desired to negate its importance and its impact on their beliefs and their behavior. They charged him with diminishing the scripture's value as a spiritual and moral guideline for Israel. He assured them nothing could be further from the truth. Look at the next part of the verse. He said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He would never set aside or abrogate or alter or replace the law of God. He was not proposing a rival system of laws. Now, it's important for us to understand how the Jews perceived the law. They use that phrase often. And it was used in four different ways. It was understood in four different ways. It was used to refer to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. It was also used to refer to the Torah, which, of course, would be in our Bibles, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Torah. That was the Mosaic Law. It was also used to refer to, as it is here, to the law and the prophets. And that was just how the Jews referred to the entire scripture of the Hebrew Bible, the laws and the prophets. But then it was also used, and this was its predominant usage by the rabbis of the day and the scribes and Pharisees of the day. They used it to refer to the oral or scribal law, the oral or scribal law. That was the most common usage by religious Jews in Jesus' day. It was what Jesus and Paul condemned repeatedly. What was the oral and scribal law? Well, you see, the scribes believed the broad principles of the Old Testament weren't really enough, if you can imagine. It's not really enough. So what they did, they layered on top of that thousands of rules and regulations. Their religion was a legalism of external keeping of a ridiculous number of petty rules and regulations. That is what Jesus and Paul were responding to. He was not rewriting, nor was he ignoring the true law of God. After all, it's his law. (laughs) He gave it. He expected the people to live by it. It was created for his people to obey. It wasn't bad. It was good. It was designed to show them their sins and to lead them to Christ. That was the purpose of the law. In Romans 3.20, the Apostle Paul said, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Galatians 3.24, he said, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The word translated tutor there, it's a very interesting word. It refers to a male slave or servant in a Greek or Roman house whose responsibility it was to take the male children and escort them safely from home to school and back from school to home and to oversee them in the meantime. I find it intriguing that Paul chose that word to describe the law. The law, in a sense, was a babysitter. And it was designed to kind of show us how God wanted us to live until Jesus came. So he's not abrogating the law. Jesus said he had come to fulfill the law of the prophets. The word means to fill out or to complete. 
It doesn't mean to bring to an end. There's another Greek word for that. He didn't use that. He used the word that just simply meant complete. Jesus was stating the law and the prophets would be completed in him. This is really important. The law and the prophets would be completed in him. Romans 10.4 says, for Christ is the end of the law. And I really think the uh, New Living Translation has caught the gist. For Christ has accomplished the whole purpose of the law. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means Jesus fulfilled the law in every way, first of all. He fulfilled prophecies. The prophets' predictions regarding Messiah were all fulfilled in him and will be fulfilled in him. He also fulfilled the moral law, the moral law. He perfectly obeyed God's code of ethics. He always did right, and he never did wrong. He was pristine in his behavior, in his thinking, in his feeling, which was essential to his mission, to die as our Savior. He also fulfilled the ceremonial law. You know, when you read the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, uh, it's a little hard to wade through it. Because in detail, he is instructing the Israelites on all of these ceremonial laws. Well, there was purpose in all of those laws. Because you see, they were types and symbols that were being illustrated, that would come to pass in who? In the Lord Jesus. And he also fulfilled the judicial law. He perfectly satisfied God's perfect justice. So Jesus' objective was not the abolition of the law. No, no, it was the completion of the law. Now look at verse 18 with me. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus continued by introducing a profound companion theme to what he's already developed. Using his favorite way to state a truth, to state a fact, Have you ever noticed in the Gospels how often Jesus says, if you have a King James Bible, verily, verily, or if you have some other translation, it's truly, or it's surely, mine is truly. You know what it is in the Greek? Amen. And when Jesus started something with amen, amen, everybody was supposed to sit up and take notice and pay attention. And he uses this formula frequently. Well, here he is on Sermon on the Mount, and he begins with amen. And instantly people focus. What is he about to say? It's used 31 times in Matthew. It was his way of emphatically pointing to a solemn declaration, something he wanted his listeners to pay close and careful attention to because it was extremely important and it was the absolute truth. So he wanted them to stay focused and listen up. Kind of like a parent with a child. You know, when you want them to listen to you, I remember I would get in the face of my children and say, now I want you to listen to me. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? That's what Jesus is doing here. Are we paying attention? Were his listeners paying attention? He declares that the scriptures would remain in existence until God destroys the present heaven and earth. Every promise, therefore, will be kept, and every prophecy will come to pass. Jesus is upholding 
a very important doctrine in the Christian church, the inspiration of the scriptures. Even right down, he says, to every word and every letter. In the Greek, it's iota or iota. Uh, the equivalent in Hebrew would be the yod, smallest letter in those two alphabets. And he says, even down to the markings, the little seraphs, the little lines that distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. Changing the smallest letter or even the lines on a letter that distinguishes one letter from another would change the meaning of the words, which in turn would change the meaning of what? The text of what had been originally said. Jesus is saying the scripture is absolutely trustworthy right down to the letters and the lines. I love knowing that about this book. That's why this book is so important. Because it is the very word of God. The doctrine of inspiration is critically important to our faith because where do we get our faith from? (laughs) We get it from the book, right? It's all right here. It's where God's revealed himself. Uh, I love storms like we're experiencing because they remind me of who he is. And nature, Romans 1 tells us that nature testifies to God's existence. And when that wind was blowing this morning and my house was shaking, and when the rain was pelting down, I looked at, we have these four big redwood trees in the backyard, and I looked out, and they were just kind of swirling around like this. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. You're so big and awesome, God. But we can't depend just on nature to communicate to us who he is. So he gives us a book. He gives us the Bible. He gives us the scriptures. And he reveals everything we need to know. That's why it's important to understand that this book is God's book. The Bible is the very word of God. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. I love what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. For no prophecy of scripture was ever given by an act of human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit as God spoke through them. Therefore, the Bible is authoritative, right? Because it's God's word. It's not only authoritative, it's trustworthy. It teaches us everything we need to know about faith, what we are to believe, and practice, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. You know, one of my favorite passages about the scriptures is Psalm 19. And I'd like to just read it. Because Jesus is declaring on that mount in Galilee that the words of God are perfect. Listen to what David writes. This is Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I like that one. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And he uses all those words to describe his word. And then he goes on and says, regarding his word, it's more desirable than gold. Yes, even than much fine gold, even than the best gold. And he goes on and says, it's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. 
Whenever we look into God's word and he reveals theological truths to us, we have to always ask this question. You ready? So what? So what? So what if Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? So what if the scripture remains until the elements pass away? So what if the Bible is God's word right down to every letter and line? Well, let me offer a few answers to the so what. First of all, the scripture teaches us that Jesus is the promised savior of sinners, which means mankind is a sinner. For all have come short of the glory of God. There's none that doeth good, not even one, Paul writes. Jesus is the promised savior of sinners. We learn in the scripture, he perfectly, perfectly fulfilled the moral law of God. He lived the life we could not live because we are sinners. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. That's why he had to be the God-man, fully man, to identify and die in our place as our representative. But he had to be God to be what? Had to be perfect. Had to be without sin. I love the declaration of the Father at the baptism of Jesus and on the Mount of Transfiguration to all who heard, the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. I find an interesting verse in John 8, 46. After being on earth for 33 plus years and three years of public ministry, Jesus boldly challenged his listeners one day with this challenge. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? My point is, Scripture reveals to us that we're sinners, we need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior, and he is the sufficient one to save us because he is the God-man. Where do we learn that? At a tree? In the backyard, in the grass? Contemplating my navel up on Mount St. Helena? I don't think so. It comes from the very word of God. That's where we learn it. That's the so what. So what? The Bible teaches me that Jesus is coming again. And given the world in which we live in, that ought to excite every one of us who are followers of Jesus. John 14, 3, Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Don't you love that promise? I love that promise. I thrive on that promise. The other thing I like about this phrase is the scripture teaches us that it's going to outlast every effort to destroy it. Every effort to destroy it. And oh, have there been efforts to destroy it, even going on even today. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the prophet talks about it this way. He says, the flowers fade, the grass dries up, but the word of the Lord, the word of God endures forever. I love that. You see, the Bible will outlast any attempt by man or devil to destroy it and eliminate its impact on the world. Uh, I heard someone say this. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. I like that. There's an interesting irony in history that illustrates this. There was a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. He was a philosopher, a satirist. Uh, He... uh, He detested Christianity. Uh, He was a skeptic. He published literature to promote 
uh, agnosticism. Some say he was maybe an agnostic, not necessarily an atheist. Some said he was a deist. But whatever, when it came to biblical Christianity, he aggressively attacked it. And he made a declaration one day. He declared that within 100 years of him saying what he was saying, the Bible would fade into history. He said it would just be a curiosity of history and only the antiquated would come and look at it. And here's the irony. Within 100 years, his home was being used by the Geneva Bible Society to store Bibles and Christian literature and to publish on the very presses that he published his literature the scriptures. God's got a sense of humor. And you see it sometimes in some of these ironies. Jesus said, it's not going to pass away. It's going to be here. Because the scriptures are enduring, its theological, moral, and spiritual truths remain unchanged. Even though the culture changes, even though the times change. And the reason I want to say this is because Our world stands opposed to God's authority and to God's truth. We know that. And instead of avoiding and calling out sin, they practice it, they promote it, and they celebrate it. And believer, I'm here to beg you, as J.B. Phillips wrote so long ago, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold by pressuring you to change our, what they would call, so-called, antiquated and unsophisticated teaching and behavior which the bible teaches i've seen christians begin to acquiesce i've seen them adjust the teachings of the scriptures to accommodate the culture in which we live my friends brothers and sisters that is a dangerous thing to do this is the very word of god and we need to stand on it declare it and be prepared to absorb whatever hits come our way for the glory of god for the advancement of the church, for the proclamation of the gospel, for the defense of the faith. Spurgeon, dead guy, sorry. Spurgeon said this, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. And I would say to that, amen. Amen. Praise God for the Bible. Praise God for the Bible. Praise God for his preservation of it, and praise God for the power it has to still speak into lives of people and transform them from sinners to saints. I got saved as a freshman in college back in the state of Minnesota, and here's how I got saved. It was not this girl. My girlfriend at the time had just become a Christian, and she kept inviting me to the Bible study, and I said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'm a good Lutheran kid. I don't want to go. So she asked me one day, would you read scripture if I gave them to you? I said, I'll do that. So she very slyly, and I'm sure it was at the council of the pastor of the little Bible church there, she gave me each week a verse from the Romans road. So week number one was Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I read it, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I sensed something happening to me. And then she gave me uh, Romans 3 where it says that no flesh is made right by the law. I was a good Lutheran kid. I sang in the choir. My friends were protesting Vietnam, smoking dope. I was singing in the choir in the Lutheran church. I thought I was a pretty good guy. That verse said, uh, no, 
You're not, Chris. And then she gave me, but God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I came under even more conviction. And then she gave me Romans 10, 9. If I'll confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. And on my own, just reading this book, those verses, the Spirit of God spoke to me, convicted me, drew me, and I trusted Christ as my Savior. And I was sitting in the pew of the Lutheran Church on a Monday Thursday night service. And there was a little card you had to fill out before you took communion. On that card came a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a man examine himself before he participate in the elements. Because apart from Christ, we're unworthy. That's how powerful the word of God is. That's the point Jesus is making. Well, let me look quickly at point two, man's relationship with the scripture. Look at verse 19. So Christ continues preaching. He says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So now Jesus turns to the believer's responsibility regarding the imperatives and the instructions found in God's word. They must not allow, the Christians, must not allow God's word to loosen its grip on how they lived or believed. They must not ignore or live outside the scriptural parameters. That's what he's saying to them. Not even those portions of the scripture that might be perceived as little or unimportant. I like that. He said, no one annuls one of the least of these commands. Jesus admonished his listeners to stay in God's lane morally and theologically. Stay in God's lane. Don't be meandering all over the place. He also warned them to not influence other followers by their errant teaching and their bad examples to wander outside the law. If so, they would be demoted in the kingdom to a lesser role. I think the kingdom in mind here, it could be one of two kingdoms. It could either be the, the kingdom of the saved, uh, the Lord's spiritual kingdom that Paul alludes to in uh, Colossians 1, were transformed or transferred rather from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. It could be that he's the Lord, we're his servants, his subjects, it's an equivalent to the church. It could also refer to the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on earth, which either one it is, he says, if you're guilty of influencing fellow Christians to meander from the word of God, you're going to be demoted in the kingdom to a lesser role. Still a reward to be in the kingdom, right? Praise God. But it would have been far more complete and full if you hadn't negatively influenced others by your example and by your errant teaching. The fact that they're still in the kingdom clearly implies, by the way, these individuals don't lose their salvation. They're still in the kingdom. They just lose reward, the capacity to glorify God. He continues, he says, but whoever keeps and teaches them, referring to the commands from God's word, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I like that. On the flip side, so Jesus now encouraged those who obeyed the commands of the scripture and taught others to do so, stating they would be promoted in the kingdom. They would have a greater role in the kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom are expected to obey the king's commands in every part of living, both in behavior and in teaching. That's what he's teaching here. 
This is a premier quality in the Lord's eyes. Did you notice he calls them what? Great. He calls them great. This also teaches that rank in the coming kingdom is determined only by God. It's his prerogative as the sovereign. As the sovereign. And then we come to our final verse, verse 20. This is an interesting verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So with this singular statement, Jesus declared war on the cherished and meticulous legalism of the scribes and Pharisees. Their righteousness was based on trying to obey the letter of the law, but it actually broke the spirit of the law. It was based solely upon the idea of gaining merit with God by externally keeping the law. Their motive, plain and simple, was to satisfy the demand of the law. It wasn't because they loved God, because they wanted to please God. No, it had to do with just some rote obedience to the law. And they could say, yes, I kept it externally, but inside they had broken it many times. God sought a faith that believed his word and that overflowed in obedience to his word. This must have been incredibly disheartening. I don't know if you thought about this. This must have been incredibly disheartening to Jesus' listeners that day. To the common people of Israel in Jesus' day, you know who the holiest guys in town were? The scribes and Pharisees. So hearing what Jesus just said, if the scribes and Pharisees, the holiest men we know in town, if they're unable to attain righteousness, what hope is there for any, anybody else, especially us? You know, what are we? We're tax collectors and sinners. But he had already answered the question, hadn't he? He had answered the question already. He told them he would fulfill the law, meaning he would keep the moral law perfectly, earning him a right standing with God as a man on our behalf. He would later go to the cross as a sinless sacrifice, dying as a substitute for sinful man, and therefore his death would satisfy God's justice. Another dead man quote, same guy, Luther. He called what took place at the cross the happy exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Where? In Christ Jesus. That's the happy exchange. That April evening in Winona, Minnesota, in that Lutheran church, that happened to me. Born again, regenerated. I became a new man, a new creation in Christ. The righteousness that would exceed the scribes and the Pharisees would be that of the Lord Jesus, the God-man. What or who are you trusting in to save your soul today? What or who? Only Jesus can save. He is the only way. Isn't that what he said? John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no man, no woman comes unto the Father but by me. Peter put it a bit differently. He said, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you are saved. And that name earlier mentioned in that chapter is Jesus. Jesus identified himself as the door. And in this very same sermon, in Sermon on the Mount, he talked about the wide gate and the narrow gate, right? 
Only Jesus can save you. Good works or legalism will never get anyone into heaven. Paul said, not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved you. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you watch NBC News on the weekends, they have a section at the very end. It's called, There's Good News. And I have good news for you today. Jesus lived the life you could not and I could not. He died the death you deserved and I deserved. God treated Jesus as if he was you, and he will treat you as if you are Jesus. One commentator put it this way, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life so he could treat you as if you lived his. That's good news. Trust him today as your Savior if you have not trusted him. And if you have trusted him, then celebrate, celebrate this good news in which we're going to do in just a few moments. Our righteousness completely fails to keep the law But praise God, Christ's righteousness completely satisfies it. I leave you with this thought to muse on over the week. Someone wrote this, the gospel, the only story where the hero dies for the villain. Jesus died for us, his enemies. And through faith in Christ, we become his friends. We acquire peace with God. We are reconciled with God. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather with fellow members of the body of Christ, to sing your praises, to pray to you, to listen to your word. And I pray for each one of us that you would help us take from your word, what we needed to hear today to encourage us, to comfort us, or maybe it convicted us and brought us face to face with a truth we needed to know. Now give us grace to act. And we act, Lord, by obeying. And we obey because we love. We love you. And to obey is to honor you. To obey is to glorify you. And so grant us grace, Lord, for those of us who know you, to celebrate what you have done to secure our redemption. And for those who may be here today without you, may they put their faith and trust in the cross and in the resurrection. For you died for them, and you were raised for them. And may they rest in that to save their soul. And we ask all of this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.